Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I want to take a moment, let you know a little bit of what's coming up in our community. And coming up on November 20th at 7.30 p.m., we have an online membership class. And so it is not on site. It's all on Zoom, which we find has been very helpful for people able to connect uh, a little easier. If you want to take that step towards becoming a member at Southview, you can register for the class at southviewchurch.com or on Realm. And this week, Clyde Glass is continuing in our series, The Incomparable Christ. But before we hear Clyde speak, he does have an update along with our chairman of the board, Roy Harvey. Thank you, Fernando. And hello, friends. Here and those joining in online, glad we can be uh, joined together. And Roy and I just want to share uh, some church family news with you. Uh, My wife Jillian and I, uh, we have been in an extended season of discerning and seeking God's wisdom about how God is guiding us in ministry and about our possible time frame in ministry here at Southview. As I turned 65 this year, which is a time in life when you do reflect on these kind of questions. And after much prayer and with incredible thanksgiving for the gift of serving at Southview, I've let our elders know uh, that the end of this ministry year, that would be at the start of June, would be the right time for me to retire as Southview senior pastor. And I want you to know, I feel so greatly supported in my ministry by our elders, by your staff, and you, our church family. And that has been the case for these past 24 years I've been serving here. And I'm honored to serve with you all. All of that is without question. And I think I've been able to serve at Southview so long because of the support partnering with in ministry and friendships and and prayers of you, our church family. And I do believe God is prompting us in this. Really, along with God's prompting, I can see many reasons why this is the right time and right step for all of us. And, And one really being that as we move out of this very unusual past two and a half years of COVID, this is a time for us to be looking forward, really clarifying where we are heading in these coming years and and really casting that vision before us as a church family. And I think it would be a great benefit to have really a longer-term leader leading us into that vision. And I think that's a good thing. And Jillian and I, really for us, we don't know exactly what is next for us. Although I'm finishing a senior pastor, In June, we want to continue to build up other pastors, really the body of Christ in some way. So we're going to be seeking God's wisdom around different options for serving in a new season of life for us. But I want to remind you, I'm not done yet. Don't say goodbye to me today, all right? Because we have this ministry year to continue to serve together in leading as many as possible to follow our incomparable Christ together. So my good friend Roy will share about what's ahead. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Whether you've been attending Southview for a long time or perhaps this is your first time, you likely were not expecting to hear an announcement like that tonight. However, just like Clyde said, he's not done yet. 
And Lord willing, Clyde will still be with us for many more months. And as we continue uh, on that path, we'll continue to enjoy his leadership as well as uh, his expounding God's word to us throughout this uh, next ministry year. And just like Clyde ended with, as a point of clarity, as we enter into this time of transition as a, as a church body, uh, we will remain committed to our mission. That won't change. And we will stay uh, the course to lead as many as possible to passionately follow Jesus. In the weeks ahead, our elders will be able to share more with you about our next steps uh, as, that we have laid out as we move into this time of discerning who our next senior pastor might be. But our first step will be to take some time as a church body to determine what it looks like to carry out ministry in the coming years. Uh, in light of our COVID realities, uh, changes in, in uh, social and political and economic landscapes, try to answer the question, what does it look like for us as a body of believers to be ambassadors and witnesses for Christ in this local community of Walden, in Calgary, and, and beyond. And once we gain some clarity in that area, it'll allow us to perhaps develop a better picture or profile of what a senior pastor uh, might look like and who we might need to help us move and serve in that direction. So as you move down that process, uh, we'll try to keep you informed uh, on weekends um, probably our viewpoint, but primarily through our realm map. So as you've heard many times from up here, uh, if you haven't done so already, I encourage you to go to our website and to, uh, to, to, to sign up for realm. My encouragement to you is first uh, to be in prayer about all of this. In times of shock and surprise, uh, it's not uncommon to not be sure how to respond, uh, maybe what to think or say or do. And most often, it's helpful to look to God uh, as we go through these kinds of times. And so <clears throat> would encourage you right now just to join me in prayer. Our Father, we do come to you with hearts full of emotion. We're filled with surprise and perhaps sorrow over the news that we just heard, but also filled with gratitude. Thank you for Clyde, our brother in Christ, our friend, our pastor. We're so grateful for how you led Clyde and Jillian to Southview over 24 years ago. Thank you for their years of faithful service to you and this body. Thank you for Clyde's love for you, his commitment to your word, to study it, to listen to your voice, and to share it with us with clarity and conviction and sensitivity. Thank you for his many years of faithful service to this body, for his shepherd's heart, to care for, pray, minister to us as individuals and collectively. So we commit Clyde and Jillian to you, asking in these days and weeks and months ahead that you would provide them with assurance of your presence and show them clearly your path for the next season in their life. 
And to Father, that you will continue to lead us, guide us as your people to know you, to enjoy you, and to declare you to our world in word and in action. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, as Roy encouraged, this is really a time for each of us to commit to praying for wisdom and discernment as a church body. God is in control, and as Clyde said, don't say goodbye yet. We continue to join together, seeking to lead as many as possible to passionately follow Christ. And the best way to know what's going on at Southview regularly is by checking out our weekly viewpoint, and you can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we'd love to hear from you. And you can find an online connection card at the bottom of the viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may your hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites you to bring all that you are and all that you're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Friends, I want to acknowledge uh, this feels odd uh, in this, uh, clearly moving from that announcement uh, to move right into our teaching. But in another way, it feels very appropriate. Because every week, we gather together here. We come with all of life's really expected and unexpected elements. And really longing, needing to receive from and be fed by Christ. And so in that way, this weekend is no different. We want him. That doesn't change. And so, therefore, we come to his word, and we come to the table. Amen? And let me add, our passage in Revelation today is not one I would have naturally picked uh, flowing out of the announcement at all. But our text from Revelation this week, it was picked long ago, and and so we're going to trust God has a purpose in this, maybe a sense of humor in some way, because we come today to an extended passage about the seven bowls of God's wrath, Babylon, the mother of evil and prostitutes, Armageddon, and the final judgment. Perfect, right? But again, we're going to believe that God will use this really to form, mold, exhort, and encourage us all in Jesus. Because here's the reality, truly, that we refer to fairly often around here. I mean, we won't understand how good the good news of Christ is until we understand how bad the bad news is. So really in a bit of contrast to how John laid it out in our scripture today, we're going to start with the bad news, to call it that, and let it lead us to the good news in this table of communion. And the section of Revelation we're in today, it's chapters 15 to 18 we're going to be looking at, it really provides an answer to the question, 
that God's faithful people were asking 2,000 years ago as they endured times of uncertainty, challenge, suffering, and persecution. And it's a question we still ask today. It's expressed in chapter 6, verse 10. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? How long must we wait, Lord? Because truly, sometimes, Lord, in our day-to-day existence that we walk through together, it seems at times like evil and darkness are winning. So how long until you bring judgment and really finally deliver justice? When will you make things right, God? And John, in our passage today, provides really a pictorial response to that question as he continues to describe this vision, this unveiling given to him by Christ. With God's judgment arriving. Here's how it unfolds. Revelation 14, if you want to turn there with me, as we come to this word again, remember, this is a word of God. And in verse 6, we read this. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. So this is God's response to the cry of his church. The answer to your question, church, is yes. There will be justice in the end. The world's systems is and are going down. And that judgment then unfolds in the coming chapters. So jump ahead to chapter 15. We read this in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. The last finished the final judgment. So what are these plagues? Verse 5, I looked in the sanctuary of the tent of witness. That's another name for the tabernacle. The tabernacle in heaven was open, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels and with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever, and the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And then in verse 1 of chapter 16, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now, to help us understand this passage, let's just kind of step back and consider the flow of this book that we've been studying. Because really, what often gets focus, and our focus in this book, are these judgments. So I want us to remember that these really heavy, dark, scary images of chapters 6 to 19, remember that they are preceded by the description of heavenly worship in chapters 4 and 5, and then they are followed by the wonder of this new heaven and new earth coming with Christ, and then the judgments expressed in chapters 6 to 19, they're just woven into regularly with these images of God's people worshiping Christ, 
in chapter 7, in chapter 10, in chapter 14, chapter 19. I mean, even the passage we just read, it describes these seven angels coming out of the sanctuary, coming out of the tent of witness, which again is a place of worship. And notably, just as it was in the wilderness of the Exodus story, and Israel's tent of witness or tabernacle. And keep that Exodus connection in mind. Okay, so as we read this book in our passage today, we need to remember, as Dr. Dean Fleming expresses, that Revelation's judgment scenes, for example, our passage today, they are to signal to us that nothing, not Evil, Satan, sin, empire, Babylon, or the beast. Nothing can abort God's saving purpose for his people. Because truly, this whole book, it is judgment leading to worship, interestingly enough. It is judgment leading to grace. Judgment leading to deliverance. It's judgment leading to a new creation. And also, we need to remember again who this book is written for as we go to this passage. Because remember again, okay, this was not written to those who don't believe in Christ. No. As we noted last weekend, this was not written to kind of scare unbelievers into trusting in Christ. Because nowhere in Revelation do the judgments of God really on their own lead people to repentance and faith. Nowhere. And it's in part because this book was written not to the spiritually lost. It was written to those who have already turned in faith to Jesus. And it was written specifically to seven ancient churches. And it was written, therefore, for us. Which again should remind us. Revelation's visions of judgment are not intended to instill fear in unbelievers, which is often how they've been used in modern times, but rather, they were written, you could say, to wake up the church that oftentimes was sleeping or had become complacent. I mean, all of these judgments in Revelation, they say to we believers, wake up. Point those who are lost, not to these coming judgments, but point them to the Lamb. Okay, so there are three sections we're going to look at today as we go through these passages together. Three sections. We're going to look at the seven bowls of God's wrath. Then we're going to look at Babylon, the mother of evil. And then three encouragements together, because I think you might need them after we go through the first part. And it really might feel like we're kind of bouncing around in our study day, but it'll hopefully come together at the end. And, and I'll tell you, there's a lot in these chapters today that we can't cover. So I'd, I'd encourage you, if you really want to go deeper into these passages, and really this whole book of Revelation, one resource I would really recommend is a book or lecture series by Daryl Johnson. It's called Discipleship on the Edge. You can find it on Amazon. It is really a good resource to use. Okay, but for us today... Seven bowls, Babylon, three encouragements. Now, you might want to take notes in this, and I know you know by now that code for there's going to be a lot, and that's the case. All right, so first, let's consider the seven bowls of God's wrath. All right, so here's the first bowl as it unfolds. It's in chapter 16 and verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, 
and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Now, as we noted last weekend, this mark of the beast, similarly as it is with the mark of God in Revelation 9, it's likely not referring to a literal or physical mark on their forehead or hand, but it refers rather to having your mind, having your life, all that you do, marked either by the beast or marked by God, by Jesus. Okay, and then these bowls, what are these bowls? They are judgments that these angels bring from God's temple and then pour out on those who reject God and follow the enemy. All right, so what are the other bowls of God's wrath? I, I thought I'd list them so we can just kind of visually see them and the whole flow of how it unfolds. So the first bowl again was sores and they were poured out on earth. Second bowl, then we throw it up there. Boom. Blood in the sea. Third bowl, similarly, blood in the rivers and spring water. Fourth bowl, as we'd read, it's scorching fire and heat poured on the sun coming to the earth. Fifth bowl is darkness upon the beast throne. Sixth bowl, then, is dried up river. Dried up Euphrates bringing frogs. Okay, now just want you to pause there for a moment. Because with that sixth bowl there, just to know briefly, the pouring out of that sixth bowl, really, it leads to the only reference by name in all of Scripture of Armageddon. Armageddon. Chapter 16, verse 14, it says this. For the frogs there that are mentioned in the sixth bowl, they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Then verse 16, and they assemble them, all these armies, at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So there's this vision of all the kingdoms and armies of the world gathering together to battle God. And again, this is the only reference by name in all of Scripture to Armageddon. The only one. So it's helpful to keep in mind then that Armageddon, it is far from being a central element in Scripture. But since we're intrigued by it, where's Armageddon? Right? Now, we know this. The, the Hebrew word, it is Har-mageddon, interestingly enough. And that means the hill or mountains of Megiddo. So where are the hills of Megiddo? Well, we don't know for sure where it's referring to or even it's referring to a specific place. Possibly, though, it's referring to this great open plain that is right by the hills of Megiddo. It's about 100 kilometers north of Jerusalem. And it's a place where a number of biblical battles were actually fought by Israel. Here's a picture of that Armageddon today. And, and this plain is called today either the Valley of Megiddo, or you might hear, hear it referred to as the Jezreel Valley. Now, you might not be able to tell from this picture, but really, when you look down on this valley, you realize very quickly, man, this is far too small of a place for the armies of the world to gather. There's just not near enough room. And, and to add to that, elsewhere in Scripture, like in the book of Daniel, 
This battle between God and the global armies, it's described there as encompassing the whole earth. So John's point here is not is likely not to try to give the coordinates of some battlefield in North Israel. I mean, as he does in much of this book, John again is using here physical imagery to communicate a spiritual reality. So John's point is simply that all the powers of evil will one day come against God. And God will deal with, judge, and bring down them all. Okay, that's the sixth seal. All right, let's touch on the last one, the seventh seal then, which is listed here. It's this earthquake, lightning, hail that splits the city into three parts. Even the air is split there. Okay, these seven bowls. Now, one thing we notice as you look at these bowls is that these judgments of God, they impact, really you could say, creation. They impact people, the beast even, the earth, sea, rivers, even the sun are impacted. And, and also, as we read of these bowls of God's judgment really being emptied, we realize, really, that there's nothing new going on here. Because this really flows with what God has been doing all along. And really, this, it should all sound kind of familiar. Because for one, the seven trumpets that Craig guided us in understanding in chapters 8 to 11, they match up quite clearly with these seven bowls. I mean, the trumpets and the bowls are not identical, but they are notably very similar. So let's compare the list of the bowls and the trumpets. Let's put the trumpets up there so you can see. As you go down, I'll just let you glance through those. Again, they're not identical, but they are very similar. Okay, so what does that tell us? For one, it, as we see the repetition of the trumpets and then the bowls, it tells us likely there's something bigger they're communicating than just listing some kind of historical events. And added to that, there are seven of both just as there are seven seals that we studied in Revelation. And we remember this, that in Scripture, and perhaps especially in the book of Revelation, the number seven is a number of perfection, of completeness. It is the number of God. So in part it's saying that God's judgment, when it does come, it will be complete. It will be perfect. And really, this is where we should remember that when we come to Scripture, our first question when we come to it should not be, okay, how do I apply this? Not a bad question. Shouldn't be our first question. Nor should we first ask, what is this telling me I'm supposed to do? No. Our first question when we come to Scripture should really not be about us or are we humans because we are not the primary focus of Scripture. Our first question when we come really to any biblical passage should be, what is this telling me about God? Because God is a primary focus of Scripture, not us, right? And, and this book, this holy Scripture, was given to us firstly, not just to give us rules to live by, 
but it was given to reveal to us, to tell us about who this God of creation is. And especially in a book that is called the revelation, the revealing, the unveiling of Jesus. Okay, so we ask then, looking at this, so what is God trying to tell us about himself in this passage? Well, we notice that even beyond reminding us of what came with the seven trumpets, the seven bowls and seven trumpets also remind us of something else significant in Scripture, right? They remind anybody of the ten plagues that were brought on Egypt in the book of Exodus? So let's throw the 10 plagues up there. Let's look at the plagues from Exodus. Now, again, they're not identical. There were 10 plagues in Exodus, and they weren't in the same order at all. But intriguing how similar each one of these is as we walk through it. And, and I want you to note here that connections with the Exodus story, they are just woven throughout this book of Revelation. Often they're subtle. Here they are not. Because these seven bowls, they really repeat aspects of judgment that were also expressed when God delivered his people from their bondage and slavery in Egypt in the Exodus. Which prompts us to ask, okay, and think back to the Exodus. What then was the purpose of God's judgments against Egypt in Exodus? What was the intent of them? Now, Eugene Peterson notes that the 10 plagues against Egypt, they did not come on Egypt because they were an extraordinarily evil people. No. They came on Pharaoh in Egypt because God wanted his people to be freed to worship and serve him. That's what they were about. That was their intent, freeing God's people to worship him. So, Pharaoh and Egypt were judged with the 10 plagues because they were determined to prevent Israel, prevent God's people from worshiping him. So the Egyptians or Exodus plagues, they then were the means for freeing God's people to worship him. And, and that's why, if you've read the account, that's why before every plague came, God said to Pharaoh through Moses these kind of words. Exodus 7, 16, let my people go so that they may serve, others translate it so they may worship me. Okay, so just as the goal of the Exodus was not ultimately the punishment and death of the Egyptians, but it was the deliverance of God's people to worship. So the purpose of the bowls is not the destruction of humanity, but is the freeing of God's people to worship him. Okay, so what? Well, that fits with the whole flow of this book of Revelation. The whole flow. Because Revelation again begins with this vision of Christ, the one whom we worship. And then it moves right away into a vision of God's people in worship in chapter 4 and 5. And it's then going to conclude with a vision of us at worship in this new heaven and new earth. And, and then throughout the book, really along the way in this book, every section, it's so interesting, leads to a song or hymn of worship, a song of praise. And that's why there are eight hymns of worship in the book of Revelation. Okay, so as we noted before, the focus of this book of Revelation, it's not an end times chronology then. That's not the focus. 
the focus is the unveiling of, leading to the worship of Jesus. That's why this book was given to us. Even words of judgment lead into the worship of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Okay, now with all that in mind, then, as we come to this, it leads us to the second focus and description of judgment in our passage today, and it's the judgment of Babylon. All right, now, Babylon is described here, for, it's first in chapter 17, it's described as a prostitute, and then second in chapter 18, Babylon is described as a city. So it can be kind of confusing as you read it. So again, first in chapter 17, it says that this prostitute Babylon, it says that she sits on the beast that has seven heads. And then it gives this explanation in chapter 17, verse 9. The seven heads of this beast are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. So the seven heads of this beast are seven mountains. Now, it might not do this for you, but that would immediately bring to mind, for John's original readers, Rome and the Roman Empire. Why? Because everybody in the ancient world who knew anything about Rome knew that Rome was a city built on seven hills. Okay, so for one, this seven-headed beast is an image of the Roman Empire then. Okay, so that's Babylon the prostitute. And then you move to chapter 18, where Babylon is a city. And it says this, chapter 18, verse 2. And an angel called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons. Then look at verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven, from heaven saying, Come out of Babylon, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. So what is that about? Well, for one, we know there was a great ancient city of Babylon. It's in present-day Iraq. So is this specifically about that ancient city? Again, which was a powerful city and really was the heart of an empire. And their king conquered Israel, destroyed Jerusalem, went against God. And that king of Babylon, you might know his name, he was Nebuchadnezzar II, who is a prominent opponent of God and God's people in really the apocalyptic prophetic writings of Daniel, of Jeremiah, of Ezekiel. He comes up again and again. In fact, the Old Testament as a whole, it contains no fewer than 280 references to Babylon referring either to the empire of that name or to this magnificent city that served as its capital. Okay, so just be aware of this. Babylon just played this huge role in Israel's history. First, really, as this very nearby threatening power, and then as their conqueror, as they carried the Judean population into captivity in 587 B.C. And then thirdly and ultimately, it was a, their place of exile from the people of Judah as they were dragged there by the Babylonian Empire and were captive in Babylon. Okay, so that's the context for this. So Babylon really represented a fundamental threat to Israel's identity, to their national existence. And, and that's why the name Babylon, 
It therefore became a term used really for all that was evil and opposed God. Okay. So then is this reference to Babylon in Revelation 18, is it speaking literally of that sitting empire? Which, again, by the time John wrote this, it had already been replaced by the Roman Empire. Likely it wasn't referring just to the city or the empire because we also note that the plagues and judgments described here didn't just come on one city, it came on the whole earth, even touching the sun as we saw. Because this again, it is physical imagery being used to communicate a spiritual reality. Which all would suggest to us that Babylon here in Revelation 18 on seven hills, it referred in part at least to the ancient decadent Roman Empire. But it referred to more than just Rome here. Because again, Babylon was a term used in that ancient day that referred not just to a particular city, but became a term that was used to describe everything that was evil. It referred symbolically not just to one city, but to all whose minds, forehead, and lives, their hands, followed the ways of Babylon and really submitted to, like Babylon, the things of the enemy, the poles of this world, and lived in opposition to God. So what do we do with that? Well, that's why the African scholar, Onesimus Ngudu, explains it this way. Babylon exists today wherever there is idolatry, prostitution, self-glorification, pride, complacency, and a reliance on luxury and wealth and violence against life. Because that is Babylon. Okay, so if Babylon here refers not just to a specific ancient or future city, but rather if it refers to all who stand against God in their minds and in their lives, then we understand that these judgments, they're against all who oppose God and submit to the enemy. And that judgment is declared here, chapter 18, verse 21. And so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Which, as we read this, this is a reminder, it's an exhortation for us not to dabble in those things that are against the will and guidance of God. It at least is that. Okay, so that's the bad news of the seven bowls of wrath, Babylon, the mother of evil, which leads to, you've been waiting for it, our third point, three encouragements. Three encouragements. Now, I want you to notice what the response of God's people is to the judgments of God because it's, it's surprising in this. Because in response to all this divine judgment and justice, which, again, we don't like to talk about much, the people of God responded to it by singing. Look at this. This is back in chapter 15, verse 3. It says this. And they sang the song of Moses, a servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. So what's the song of Moses? 
Well, it's a song that the people of Israel sang when they saw God's final judgment fall on Pharaoh and his army. I mean, you probably remember the story, Exodus 14, when the people of God, seeking freedom to worship God, they fled from Egypt, from Pharaoh and his great army, as they were in pursuit of them. And God, again, miraculously opened the waters of the sea for Israel to pass through. But when Pharaoh and his army followed them, God brought all the waters down back upon them. Because the 10 plagues were not enough to stop Pharaoh's rage or to stop his drive to really keep God's people enslaved, to keep them from worshiping God. So when God's judgment came down and really destroyed Pharaoh and his army, the people of Israel, Exodus 15 records, sang a song of worship to God that was called the Song of Moses. Now, we're a bit uncomfortable with that in our day, aren't we? I mean, rejoicing in divine judgment. I mean, even if it's your enemy, feels a little strange. I mean, we can understand, certainly, they had an enormous sense of relief. They did. I mean, we're safe, we're free. But to respond to that judgment with worship? Well, struggle with that as we might, strange as we think it sounds, we need to reflect on it. We need to consider it. In, in part because we see the very same response to God's judgment throughout this book. In Revelation 15, 16, 18, and 19. In fact, listen to this. This is from chapter 16 and verse 5. It says this. The people say, saying, just are, you, just are you, O Holy One, who is and was. Why do they worship him? For you brought these judgments. Or you go to Revelation 19, and perhaps the greatest explosion of praise in this book, Revelation 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? For his judgments are true and just. So be happy about that. Praise God for that. And they did. Which might make us ask, okay, what are we missing? I mean, most of us, I would guess, have a bit of unease about the judgment of God. I think we would rather, as I would rather, talk about the love of God. But with that in mind, I want to consider another reality about us. I mean, while we may struggle with God's judgment and wrath, there is something else built in every one of us that yearns for justice, right? We long for justice. I mean, we rightly get angry, get frustrated when justice is denied or when justice is delayed around us. We get frustrated. I mean, murder, rape, abuse, theft, they're bad enough. But when people get away with it, okay, that drives us nuts. So we also need to notice how those being judged here were responding to God's judgment. Look at chapter 16, verse 11. And they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Because... That is how evil responds every time. It is held accountable for what it does. And, and you can see YouTube evidence for this, often in our own day. And for example, when Pharaoh 
when he ignored God's mercy with the 10 plagues, that those plagues still gave him time and opportunity to change his ways and release God's people. And, and then when he finally encountered God's final judgment as the seeds came down upon him, I do not in my wildest dreams imagine that Pharaoh was then crying out, okay, God, I repent now, save me now. And I know this, I know some of you have experienced this yourself. Maybe when you've tried to confront another person about an injustice they brought, maybe it's at work, maybe it's at home, and the response is, as you've experienced it, not repentance and contrition, but cursing, blaspheming, rage. Experience that? And in our chapters in Revelation 8, we see that same reality as God brings his judgment against Satan, against his forces, and the systems of evil in society that are embodied in a city called Babylon. But I know this. This still leaves us with questions that, again, we can't fully address today, but can speak to too briefly. Because as we consider the judgment of God, I at least want to recognize these three encouragements. And the first just being this. God is a judge. God is a judge. Which means the judge is not me. The judge is not you. As God's people in this world, we're to seek to live out his justice. But judgment, vengeance, those are another matter. Our God is a judge there. And then I think a second point of encouragement is this. We can rest on the reality that God will judge rightly. He will judge rightly. I mean, we just read of it in chapter 19. His judgments, they are true and just. And, and that might not feel like it helps really, but I think it can help us. Because, friends, the testimony that we can rest on and the testimony of God's word and the testimony is this. When all this goes down, when all this takes place, among the myriad of things that will amaze us on that final day, will thrill us, maybe even cause us to worship, will be the rightness, the justice of it all. Because of this third source of encouragement, which is just this. I think the final judgment of God from his word will be full of at least two things. We can rest in the reality that God will judge with grace and God will judge with truth. So therefore, in light of all those, so then when we ask, well, what about people who never heard about the gospel? Or what about young children? Or what about the mentally handicapped? We can rest then in this. Our God's judgment, it'll be full of grace and it'll be full of truth. God's judgment of each one of us will be full of that kind of grace and truth. And friends, if you want a picture of what the heart of our God is, just look immediately to Jesus. For Jesus is the one who said, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, he still says to you today, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you shalom. I will give you rest. Because if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. 
So our question is, what are you betting on? I mean, what are you putting your confidence in? I mean, I invite you today to call out to this God who is merciful, gracious, loving, beyond all your understanding, for he is a God who, as the angels of heaven declare, is holy, holy, holy. Amen? So let's do this as a way of preparing us and leading us to this table. Danny's going to come and lead us in praying and singing to this holy God. In response, even to things we don't understand, we declare his goodness, his truth, his holiness. Let's sing together. God. 
We come now in the presence of that holy God, that God beyond our understanding, who has reached out to us through his son. And we take these simple elements of bread and the cup together, lifting them to him and praying, Father, that you would feed us in this bread, in this cup. Nourish us spiritually, we pray, for we come in the name of Jesus. Amen. So can I invite you, friends, to Peel back the top layer of that cup you received when you came in to pull out the bread together. And we come today aware of the holiness of our God who will bring justice, but thinking also of his son who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I want to give you rest. And we come to him freely because the blood of Christ was poured out for you. Take and eat. And then we take the cup. And again, if we struggle with, and we do struggle with, the judgment of God, the wrath of God, it brings us back to this cup because the hope is the extent of his love is that the blood of Christ was poured out for you so receive from him and drink will you pray with me friend oh father how we thank you for your goodness and majesty we know you are so other, you are so holy, Father, and so I pray you would guide us to bring you honor and grace. Thank you for the grace, for the salvation, the hope you've given us, not just for this life, but for eternity in your Son. And I pray this week as we walk into it, that in a world that is lost, in a world of darkness, you'd use us to be salt and light, instruments of your peace in the way we walk, even the words we say. So we pray this together as your people gathered in your son's name and all God's people say, amen. Amen. Will you stand with me, friends? And thank you for hanging in there through this time together today and want to encourage you to come back next weekend as we have our missions weekend. It'll be a great time together. So hope you can come back for that. And if you're interested, if you are a newcomer visitor with us, Tomorrow after 11 o'clock service, we have a newcomer's lunch. Just let the newcomer center know. We'd love to have you join for that. But as you walk in this week, whatever it is going to hold for you, 
Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift his countenance on you this week and give you his incredible peace in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's walk in that grace. Amen.